Revelation chapter 9. But before we start, I just wanted to show you something. A tweet came across this week from someone that I follow. His name is Joel Rosenberg. He is an expert at geopolitical affairs. He's written many, many books. Uh, one of his most famous books is called Epicenter. I'd, I'd really like to encourage you to read it. He is a strong Christian brother, and he is very much looking for the return of Jesus Christ, but he quoted a Pew study. It's not because the study stinks. It's Pew, P-E-W, that 55% of Americans today currently believe that Jesus Christ will return. Out of those 55%, 40% believe that we are currently living in the last days. What we talk about here in the book of Revelations is relevant. People are asking questions today unlike any other time uh, in my Christian life. We see things unfolding in the world that we cannot explain. We see a, ge a geopolitical shift like we've never seen before around the world. We see countries coming together. We see the decline of the United States of America. We see political insanity taking place, not only here, but around the world. And it all leads to one conclusion. Jesus is coming back really soon. Amen. And we see that. In studying the book of Revelation, we are looking at a period of time called the Great Tribulation Period. From chapters 6 to chapters 19, a period of time is described to us, which I personally believe, as Christians, we will not be part of. We will be removed before God pours out his wrath upon the world. But in saying that, I want us to be well aware of what's going to occur after the church is removed. Why? Because I want you to be praying. I want you to be reaching out to friends and family members who don't know Christ, who will be destined to enter into that period of time if they are not taken by the Lord prior to it. We read these things to once again discover the reality that the wrath of God is waged against the sin of man. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no way to reconcile that sin between a fallen man and a holy God. Only through the gospel of Christ can that occur. That's why we look at these things together. The title of my message today in Revelation chapter 9 is Apocalypse Now. But if I were to abbreviate it or to give it a secondary, a secondary title, it would be All Hell is Breaking Loose Upon the Earth. As we looked at last time in Revelation chapter 8, we saw the first four trumpets sound. And in each sounding of each of those trumpets, another judgment was poured out upon the earth. But now the Bible tells us at the end of chapter 8 that three woes, three terrors are about to come upon the earth. And the first of those terrors are found in the fifth sounding trumpet where a horde of demonic creatures are released upon the earth. Aren't you glad we deal with light things here on church? So let's pick it up in chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpion of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. 
In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had their uh, hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like the lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. And they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name was in Hebrew, Abaddon, but in Greek, his name was Ap Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming on these things. What in the world is going on? Okay. We find that the demonic world is real. Today, many, including Christians, have naturalized, sanitized, despiritualized the Bible. Where Satan is no longer a true individual figure, but he's just the personification of evil. Not that he is real, not that he exists, not that he had fallen as an angel from heaven. Demons are just the uh, evil acts of a human being. Well, they can be, but they're not solely that. During the first coming of Jesus Christ, we saw that demonic activity increased greatly, didn't we? Even after Jesus ascended into heaven, into the book of Acts, we still have demonic encounters. But in the power of Christ, Paul simply said, leave. Demons are real. The devil is real. And at this point in the tribulation period, at the sound of the fifth trumpet, an event takes place where it says a star from heaven falls. I believe this is referring to an angel, if not Satan himself, is given keys to this bottomless pit, the abyss, or in Greek, the abuso. It is a certain place where certain demons are stored. Now you're like, okay, wait a minute, I haven't even had my coffee yet this morning, Pastor, and you're hitting me with this stuff. What is going on here? Well, this is nothing new. In fact, Jesus talked about this abyss. Well, in fact, he was begged by demons that he was about to cast out that they would not be cast into the abyss. You remember that event that took place when Jesus found that man who was possessed by a legion of demons? And when he went to cast those demons out, they begged him not to throw them into the abyss, Luke 8.31. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Demons were well aware of this place, this pit. And of course, you know the story, Jesus cast them into a, a herd of pigs. And of course, the pigs drowned themselves. This was known to the apostle, this abyss, in 2 Peter 2.4. For if God had not spared the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, this is referring to that pit, to be reserved for judgment. Jude, which is closely linked to 2 Peter, said in Jude 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. What did these demons do to warrant such an imprisonment? Because all demons are not kept there. A certain group of demons are. Well, I believe that these demons left their first abode in Genesis chapter 6, where they left and intermingled with the women of the earth. And from that intermingling, a species was brought forth called the Nephilim, a demonic type of creature that was brought forth. 
If, I, if you want to leave now, I understand. <laughs> okay, I get it. But this is what the Bible says. And we don't shy away from hard things here at Calvary. We don't do it. And as a result, shortly after this intermingling between these angels and these humans, or these demons and these humans, they say, well, how is that possible since angels don't carry sex either way? They most likely possessed an individual and then intermingled with women, and from that, their offspring were these creatures called Nephilim. Shortly after that, God judged the whole world. It was their attempt to pollute the bloodline that eventually would bring forth Messiah, Jesus Christ. It was a direct spiritual assault upon the coming Messiah. After committing this atrocity, they then were bound in this abyss to be released at a certain time, and that release is what I believe that we see here today. This is the worst of the worst. This is like those individuals that are incarcerated in the maximum security prison that no one talks or looks at or interacts with because they are so deadly in their, uh, in their position. It is these individuals, these demons that are released upon the earth during the tribulation period to bring about complete hell on earth. In Revelation 11.7, we talk more about this bottomless pit. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And we find that it is this abyss that Satan is locked in for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom where in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Let me just stop there because there are some Christians who believe that the devil is currently bound today, that he is in the bottomless pit today. If that's the case, that chain is way too long, okay? Way too long, because he continues to wreak havoc. He is still the ruler of this world. Paul made that abundantly clear. But no, at this point, he will be imprisoned and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. I love that. And shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Why, oh why? But we'll look at that as we get to it in our, in our study together. This individual, this angel comes in Revelation 9. He opens the great bottomless pit. Smoke ascends like a smoke from a blast furnace would ascend, covers the moon, the stars. It just causes, it's like a volcano erupting. And the ash is blocking out the light from reaching the earth. The description given here is one that John could only give us in human terms. But we find that they are fierce, they are aggressive, and they are here for the purpose of torment. Though they have limitations, they are unable to kill, but they are certainly here to torment. They will do so for five months, and he refers to them as locusts. Notice that. Now that is a very interesting correlation to the Old Testament. Locusts, was, locusts were often used as a form of judgment in the hand of God. In the book of Exodus, locusts were used to judge Egypt. One of the curses of Deuteronomy 28 is the coming of locusts. And in Joel chapter 1, the invasion of locusts. In Joel chapter 2, uh, verse 25, So I will restore the years that swarms of locusts has eaten, 
the crawling locust, that con the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. Great army which I sent among you. God has used these as instruments of judgment. As he is using these demons here in Revelation 9, again, as instruments of judgment. But they were limited in what they could do. They could not touch the grass. They could not touch the trees, etc., or any green thing. They were solely set after the individuals who were not sealed of God. Now, we know that the 144,000 from Revelation 7 were sealed with a seal that God gave them to show and to depict that they were his. But it appears that those who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period will also have that seal upon them. But let me assure you today and encourage you today, if I may, that seal is upon you already. The book of Ephesians tells us very clearly that we have been sealed. And how have we been sealed? We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now listen, the devil is a formidable opponent, an enemy. But there are limitations to what he can do in the life of a believer. There is limitations to what demons can do in the life of a believer. Oh, they can make it hard. They can bring about persecution. They can bring about oppression. But here's one thing I want to make abundantly clear today. I do not believe that with the Holy Spirit residing in us that a Christian can be possessed. I believe that we have been freed and there's no room for a demon and the Holy Spirit. Now they can make it difficult for us. They can cause trouble for us. But let us also understand that we have authority in the name of Christ. And that we never should shy away. Now I'm not here to look to pick a fight with Satan, okay? In fact, if that ever happened, if I was confronted by Satan in a dark alley, I would say, Dad, <laughs> all right, time to intercede, Dad. Because there's no way that I could ever deal with him. In fact, the angels shied away from that. When they encountered Satan, they say, not I, but the Lord rebuke you. But there are limitations. But one of the greatest deceptions that Satan has brought upon our society today is the deception of his non-existence. I love what C.S. Lewis said in his Screwtape Letters. Listen to this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which one race can fall above about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What was he saying? C.S. Lewis was saying this, that if we as Christians are obsessed with the devil, we make a mistake. If we as Christians dismiss the devil, we make a mistake. The devil is real. Demons are real. They do exist. And I have a feeling it wouldn't be difficult to see that their work is already playing out in our world today. Many Christian scholars are beside themselves trying to understand the illogical manner in which our world is currently conducting itself. Nothing makes sense anymore. One of the best quotes that I've heard in the last two years is this. According to our current society, the new equation is this. Two plus two equals fish. Nothing makes sense anymore. The dots don't connect. We don't see the big picture. But we know, the Bible tells us, though that God is not the author of confusion, Satan is. If he can keep us confused and distracted, if he can keep a society from coming together in a consensus, he brings about his chief method of, dis of destruction, and that is to divide and conquer. 
Our society today is making illogical decisions, not because of intellectual prowess, but because of spiritual deception. Oh, we as believers are protected. But those who are not in Christ find themselves wide open to Satan and his henchmen. One of the things I want to say about Satan, and I want to make this abundantly clear, and if you're one who likes to write in their Bibles, please write this. Satan is by no means an equal to Jesus. Okay? He is by no means an equal to Jesus. He is not omnipotent. He can't do anything. He is not all-powerful. He is not omnipresent. He cannot be in all places at the same time. And he is not omniscient, meaning he does not know all things. So when people want to say, well, Jesus and Satan, they're just the opposite. No way. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus is God himself. And Satan cannot be in his presence unless Jesus allows it. There we go. I just want to put things in perspective for you. I like what one person wrote. He said, Satan's evil army might have certain powers, but compared to the name of Jesus, their power is like comparing a weak flashlight bulb to a lightning bolt. Okay? Let's put things in perspective. Now, during the tribulation period, the bottomless pit is opened. The demonic hordes then come out. And they begin to wreak havoc upon the earth. We're going to find that a third will be destroyed. And as a result, we will see that this is the first of the three woes coming upon the whole human race. But I want to give you a little bit of background on Satan. Because people are confused today. People are confused. Satan was a cherubim. He was an angel that desired to be like God and as a result was cast down by God. This all begins as the prophecies are given, the information is revealed to us in two Old Testament books, Isaiah 14, you may want to mark that, and also Ezekiel 28. In both cases, a king is described and yet the language concerning the description of those kings changes. And in it we discover that God is revealing the backstory to how Satan fell. And as we begin in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17, if you'd like to turn there, it's good for you to see it in your own Bible. Notice this. Isaiah writes, he says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Some of your Bibles may uh, read shining star. Lucifer, the word is light bearer. It is a noun, not a pronoun. It is not a proper noun, excuse me, in the original text. Uh, So, Some people think that this word shouldn't be used there, but it's perfectly acceptable to be used there because it is a Latin word that we now have given uh, the understanding to being a proper noun, which is one of the various names of Satan, Beelzebub, Satan, the devil, etc., all names for this fallen one. O son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground. You have weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the uh, mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It is pride that caused Satan's fall. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the what? pit already talked about those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying is this the man who made the earth tremble who shook the kingdoms 
who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. Now, what is he saying there? Meaning that when we as believers finally see Satan, we're going to be like, this is the guy? This shrimp? I gave him way too much credit. You know why? Because we're going to be seeing him in the throne room of God. We're going to be seeing him through the perspective of Jesus and God the Father standing behind me. And I'm going to tell you right then, I'm going to get really bold at that moment. But that's what we're going to look at Satan and say, really? Him? If I went to high school with him, he'd still be locked in his locker. Come on. What is up with that? That's the guy? In Ezekiel 28, if you want to flip there quickly, we find more of the fall of Satan in verses 2 and 3. As Ezekiel begins, he says, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God, and I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, Yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. Again, pride depicted. But how do you know that this is Satan that he's referring to? I often get that question when it comes to the address of these two kings, the king of Babylon and now the king of Tyre, prince of Tyre. Notice with me in verse 13, if you will. You were in Eden, the garden of God. How is that possible? How could this king be in the garden of Eden back at the beginning of creation? He couldn't have been. He's talking about somebody else. He's talking about Satan. The fall of Satan. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the brel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire the turquoise and the emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Many believe that Satan was the angel of music. You were an anointed cherub who covers, and I established you. When was the prince of Tyre ever a cherub? You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. These are the addresses that give us the theological background to Satan himself. This is how Satan fell. He fell because of pride. He wanted to be like God. When he approached Eve in the garden, what did he say to her? Because God knows that when you eat of these things, you will be like God. It's the same lie. Now, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Because we're going to see something at the end of this message today that may surprise you. See, Satan has one string on his guitar. Satan is not a creator. He's a counterfeiter. Okay? He doesn't create. He counterfeits. God creates. He counterfeits it. Even the Antichrist will be, appear to be killed and three days later rise again. I think we've done that already, right? This, this is a rerun. Of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ. But when Satan fell, he didn't fall alone. Demons fell with him. Other angels, as Revelation 12:4 states, his tail drew a third of the stars from heaven. And they threw them to the earth. A third of the angels fell with Satan at that time. A third. And it is these angels that we now see as demons. Now there's three things I want to tell you about the devil and demons. Three things this morning. Because I think it's important that we remember who our true enemy is. Paul the Apostle made it clear that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but of principalities, powers, and so forth. And we engage in that battle through prayer. Prayer is the, one of the great weapons that we hold, along with the Word of God. First, I want to let you know that demons and the devil are real, and they are aggressive. They are real, and they are aggressive. 
Job being, one of the, being the oldest book of the Old Testament, Job, we get an insight of Satan coming before God, accusing Job, wanting to test Job, not being allowed to because God had a hedge of protection. You can read it for yourself, but God removes that hedge. Satan comes after Job, and Job remains faithful. That was the Cliff Note version. Okay, there's a lot more to that story. But in Job chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to the presence that present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, For where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going forth on earth and walking back and forth on it. Now, what is he doing walking back and forth to and fro on the earth? Peter gives us this insight in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's coming after you. And I'll tell you this, once you become serious about God, Satan gets serious about you, so be prepared. Be prepared. Now, what does this mean? Satan is our great accuser. Satan cannot understand how we may stand perfect, perfected in the presence of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Remember, Satan fell because of pride in his heart, and he was cast out. You and I, born into sin, through Christ, were once again reconciled to God, and now we can stand before God the Father because of our position in Christ. Let me put it this way. First John alludes to this. In First John chapter 2, words like advocate are used concerning Jesus Christ. Words like propitiation are used. They're legal terms. Let me give you a little illustration. As you and I stand before God the Father, Satan accuses us, saying to God the Father, they have no business standing in your presence. And they list out our sins. He lists out our sins before God. I fell because of pride, but look at their list. They should have no business before you. They blew it. They should be cast out. They should die in exile and in eternity apart from you. They have no business here. And you know what? All of that is true. Every word of it is true. But, sometimes the smallest words in the Bible have the greatest theological impact. But, it is at that moment that we hang our head in shame. It's at that moment that the gavel is about to drop from God the Father upon us, seeing us, and finding us guilty. It's at that moment that a nailed scar hand interrupts the process. It's at that moment that Jesus Christ, our advocate, stands between us and God the Father and simply says, they, he, or she is one, not that I'm changing my pronouns, it's he or she is one of mine. He or she is one of mine. The gavel comes down, innocent. Why? Because we have been bought, we've been paid for, we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven of us our sins, and cleansed us from all unrighteousness, and robed us in the righteousness of Christ that we may stand in perfection before God the Father. That was a great place for an amen, and you totally blew it. <laughs> totally blew it. That's our advocate. That's our Jesus. And Satan walks away humbled before God. Oh, we have no reason to boast, right? Even though you may be tempted to stick out your tongue at Satan as he walks away at that moment. But we have to realize that all he said was true, and it was only by the grace of God that allowed us to stand at that moment. So instead of sticking your tongue out at Satan, why don't you hug Jesus? fall at his knees and say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done for a sinner like me. Number two, I want you to know that the devil and demons have limitations. 
We see that here in our text. Do not harm the grass. Do not harm the trees. Do not harm anything that is uh, green. We also see here that they are unable to take a life. Just like going back to Job. The devil couldn't take Job's life, right? He made it really difficult for Job, but couldn't take his life. Neither could they. They are limited. Jesus is limitless. They are limited in what they can do. Paul the Apostle said it this way, and brilliantly, in, in my opinion, in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted. Temptation is the method in which Satan comes at you. It's his primary weapon. He used it against Jesus. He used it against Eve. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded. Tempt you beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Satan can't come at you unless God allows it. And even if he allows it, he's not going to allow you to fall. Or in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. And the Lord said to Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked, notice that, asked for you. Couldn't just do what he asked, had God's permission. That he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, I love that, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And lastly, knowing that you and I are sealed as the individuals in our text are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Lastly, number three, the devil and the demons flee at the name of Jesus Christ. They flee. In James 2.19 you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and what? Tremble at the knowledge of that. When Jesus approached that individual who is possessed by legions, they knew exactly who he was. They knew their time was up and it would be only by his grace if they, he would allow them to move someplace else other than the abyss. When Paul the Apostle dealt with the seven sons of Sceva, when they tried to cast those out, when the uh, Jewish religious leaders tried to cast out those demons, the demons came back and said, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? And they went running. So not only did they know Jesus, but they knew Paul, his servant. They know you. They know you. But I love this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. They flee at the name of Jesus. But what's Satan's endgame in all of this? His endgame is the game that he began from the very beginning with Eve that Jesus warned us about in John 10.10. 10. When John writes, he says, Jesus told us that the thief comes not, does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Satan will destroy you. Jesus will restore you. Jesus will give you something that no one else can give you, and that is true life. So many people today think that they are alive, but they are simply existing. They don't know what life is. They don't understand it. They don't get it. Once you come to Christ and you see true life, abundant life, victorious life, when you see a life that comes with joy and peace and an unconditional love, then you understand what you have been missing the whole time. I like what one wrote in his book. He said, the devil doesn't walk up to you and say, good morning, I am Lucifer, Satan, the great dragon. Maybe you've heard of me. Anyway, I'm here for one purpose, and that is to ruin your life, for I hate you. 
I hate your family. I hate everything about you. Bottom line, I just want to bring you misery, sorrow, pain, and guilt. Whatever it takes, I want to inflict maximum torture on you. How many people are going to go for that? Well, not many, he says. So when the devil approaches someone, he comes with all of his enticements, hiding his true purpose behind his back. He says to you, uh, he, he says, what are you into? What gets you excited? Is it women, men, drugs, money, alcohol, pleasure, religion, power? I've got it all, he says. Take your pick, check it out. He throws out his line with some very attractive bait on the end of it, but there is also hidden a hook within it. And he will use this line to reel you in and to destroy your life. That's the way Satan works. But we know better. We know better. And notice here in verse 12, now one woe has passed. Behold, two more are coming. Verse 13. Then the six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. That is the altar, the brazen altar that is before God. Those horns are the horns in which the sacrifice would be tied to. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So there are four angels bound at the great river Euphrates on the east side of Israel. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. These angels have been bound, obviously demons, because angels we don't find bound in other places of Scripture. These demons, again, bound for a purpose, for an exact moment in time which has now come. And the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million and I heard, of, I heard of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, blue, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now what's going on here? Two possible interpretations. The first interpretation, again, coincides and succeeds the previous verses by saying that these 200 million are, again, 200 million demons that are going across the earth wreaking havoc upon the earth. But others believe, and I agree with the latter, that this represents an army that is released in the last days at the time of the battle of Armageddon. A 200 million men army who comes from the east into Israel at the time in which Israel is under the siege of the Antichrist and his forces, and they're coming to be resisted by this 200 million man army from the east. Now, back in 1965, China was already boasting about the capability of waging war with a 200 million man army. Of course, we are farther along than that today. I don't think it is any coincidence at all that China is showing its aggression today more than ever before. China wants to conquer the world. Don't, don't mistake that. With all the attention being placed on Russia and the Ukraine conflict, we are missing the point that China is rising up to a power that we haven't seen before. There are some very scary things happening in China. Very scary things happening in China. China is coming at us economically. China is coming at us politically. And China is coming at us militarily. Over the last three years, as the United States appears to be in a decline, China has been bolstering everything, their economy. In China, young men are, be given, are given training in masculinity. Today, young men are being encouraged no longer to be masculine, but to be feminine. In China, TikTok, of course, which is a Chinese company, 
In China, when young people access TikTok, they find all kinds of things that would educate them and make them better people for the Chinese society. When we access TikTok here in the United States, it's absolutely programmed to give us every woke understanding that is possibly, could possibly be found. The Chinese government flew a balloon over the United States of America and we did not respond until that balloon was over the ocean and it had already sent back the signaling that it had. China's coming after our lunch, folks, one way or another. And it may not be through nuclear weapons or EMPs or anything like that. It may simply be economic. As the BRICS nations continue to come together to try to de-dollarize de the world. Now, I think they have a ways to go. I think there are many roadblocks in its path. But what concerns me today is the weakened leadership of the United States of America in the wake of this onslaught. I think that the world sees that we are weak and are taking advantage of it. Back 20 years ago, a think tank came out with a, a report that I read at church talking about one of the greatest uh, vulnerabilities that would be created in the, United uh, in the world is not the United States being overly strong, but the moment the United States became overtly weak, leaving a vacuum in the world and allowing others to pursue filling that void. But at the Battle of Armageddon, it appears that China will move against Israel at the same time that the uh, Antichrist moves against Israel. And in that battle, there in Israel, something happens. Someone comes and interrupts it all. The clouds break. The white horse appears. And him who sat on it had a sword coming from his mouth. And on his head was a crown. On the side was written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ returns. But let's continue on. Verse 18, by these plagues, a third of mankind was killed. And by this point now, half of the population of the world has been destroyed. By fire and by smoke and by the brimstone which came out of the mouths, for their power is in their mouth and their tails. Again, this is descriptive language that he would use to describe these things at his day. For their tails are like serpents, having heads with them, they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed, now this is where it gets really sad in my opinion. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They hardened their heart like Pharaoh did against God in the wake of the onslaught of this judgment. But I want you to notice with me, if you will, their sins that are listed there. And the very first one that is listed is the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. Now, I don't know how much you know about the sin of idolatry, but the Bible clearly articulates it, Old and New Testament alike. And this is really important, so listen up, if you will. Idols are a creation of man's hands, okay? And often the idol is created in the image of the one who is crafting it. Chuck Smith used to teach a story about a tribe in New Guinea when he went there to plant churches, about a tribe in New Guinea that they discovered, and because of the replication of faulty DNA within them, and because they were a closed society, they didn't have outward influence, unfortunately, the society grew with one leg shorter than the other because of the 
genetics because of the DNA. They kept passing it on, and finally everyone in the village had one leg shorter than the other. Well, to Chuck's surprise, he discovered that the idols that they created also had one leg shorter than the other. It just shows us that often we create gods in our own image to our own likeness. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking simply about physical appearance, but I'm also talking about what we like. Okay, let me explain and illustrate for you quickly, if I may. I know it's warm in here today. Just pretend that it's January. <laughs> it's 30 below. Because I think that's what it'll be tomorrow, right? If I saw the forecast correct. So let's talk about that likeness for a moment. Whenever I engage in sharing my faith with someone, and I talk about my God, they always reply with the statement, their God, or but they'll say, my God. Well, my God is like this. My God accepts everyone and never condemns anything that you would consider sin. My God lets everyone into heaven because my God loves everyone. My God is created in my likeness and my image. You see what's happening here? They're creating their God like one would create their plate at the Golden Corral. And I don't recommend that, by the way. You know, because I discovered that once I became an adult, I wasn't uh, longer guided by the rules that I was as a child when it came to buffet. I could go to the dessert table first and nobody would yell at me, okay? But when we go to a buffet, we create a plate that we like. Many people are creating a God that they like, that supports their understanding, that supports what they want to see from their God. But remember what he says here, that this God can neither see nor hear or walk, that God is useless and has no ability to intervene on your behalf whatsoever. Today, the fastest growing religion in America is the religion of the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. They do not affiliate with any God whatsoever. Now, I wouldn't call them atheists, more agnostic in my discussions with them. And often, if they do recognize some type of deity, it is always created in an image of their liking. Many are walking away, creating their own gods. But notice what he says here. The relationship, again, between idols and demons are given. And this reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. What I am saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is often offered to idols is anything. He's asking the question rhetorically. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? Demons, and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. What's behind an idol? Demons. Back in the 1970s, a terrible movie called Clockwork Orange was released. And in the satanic elements of that movie, the great creed of Satanism was given do what thou wilt is the whole of the satanic law. Do whatever you want to do, just don't come to Jesus. But see, God often has other plans. Last week in Boston, there was a convention of Satanists. And there in their convention, they hailed Satan, they, they recited chants to Satan, etc. Well, a group of Christian evangelists converged upon that convention. And according to one, over 100 Satanists came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do you think, what, do you think Jesus cares for a moment what Satan thinks? Jesus is going to do what he's going to do. And if he wants to save people, he's going to save people. But let us, not, let us not dismiss the idea that behind an idol is demonic activity. I'm going to show you something this morning that is gravely concerning. It was released in the Israeli Times on May 3rd of this month. It was an article written by a man named Yuval Noah Harari, 
and he warns against the AI that is being implemented because the AI can create religious text that may inspire new cults. Meaning that the creation of cults in the future will be at the hand of AIs. Historian and philosopher says technology could attract worshipers ready to kill in the name of religion and urges tighter oversight and regulations on the sector. He went one step farther in another article released the same day, or more information given, from First Post, who said, Chat GPT as God, AI bots capable of starting new religions, warns expert. And then he goes on to say, that this historian and scholar has claimed that AI chatbots like ChatGPT are now capable of writing their own scripture and starting sects and cults which can evolve into religions. He also is calling for stricter regulation on AI. But he went on to say one more thing. Notable scholar and authorian also went on to say that the world is on the verge of getting a new religion that will be completely generated by artificial intelligence. This Jewish man is the right hand to a man that you are all familiar with. He is the right hand of a man named Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum. And he is warning us about AI. One of the leading minds in AI that was employed by Google resigned a week ago because of the dangers. Elon Musk is screaming from the top of his lungs, be careful, watch out. And what's really interesting is that before the firing of Tucker Carlson, if you haven't watched his speech from the Heritage Foundation's 50th anniversary, please do so. Because he warned Americans, don't get rid of your books. Don't get rid of your books. It's the only text that they cannot change. They've been redefining words for the last 10 years, haven't they? Maybe longer than that. And now texts, whole texts, are going to be recreated. How many movies? How many Disney movies have been recreated to adopt the current culture within them? How many points of history have been revised? How many statues have been taken down so we would remember no more? We are on the verge and a precipice of a reconditioning, a re-education like we've never seen before. And all of this, all of this is undoubtedly moved by demonic activity. If the next cult, the next idol is going to be created, it'll be created through AI. And what is behind that AI? Well, apparently, as Paul would say, be careful. Again, AI is a tool. But when man interweaves his um, personal immorality, his depravity within it, they're teaching AI to lie right now. Be careful. Be careful. But I don't want you to be afraid. Because Jesus said that his word is immovable. Nothing's going to challenge this. When Satan confronted Jesus Christ... Jesus said to Satan, but it is written, right? And so he will say to you, it is written. Notice here murders. Over the last uh, decade, murders have increased. I'm sorry. Over the last 30 years, murders have increased 560% in America. Sorceries. This word sorcery is given from the word pharmakia. It's talking about drug use, which was often used to tap into the spiritual world. Sexual immorality, of course, we found that spiritual idolatry is often depicted through sexual immorality, but here the word is pornea, which means pornography and thievery. In the wake of almost all natural disasters, thievery, carnage takes place where everyone is in it for themselves. We saw this in 2020 during the Floyd Rose, uh, Floyd, Floyd, um, uh, George Floyd, excuse me, uh, riots. Nothing says equality and justice more than ripping off a Nike store, right? We saw this carnage, but it'll only intensify as time 
goes on and within the tribulation period. In closing, in all of this, we still see that God is working out his plan. And neither the sins of mankind nor the schemes of Satan will hinder him from accomplishing his will. As one wrote, Dr. Warren Worsby, he says, things will not look bright for God's people during the middle stage of the prophetic journey of the tribulation, but they will still be overcomers through the power of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Today, we stand victorious. We are not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory as Christians. And though these days are still yet to come, let us prepare for them by taking the gospel to every person that we know who does not know the Lord, that they may be spared from this time to come. Amen.